whether it be mental or physical. Thanks for listening to Noise Filter, your public health podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Noise Filter podcast. Stay well out there, folks, and continue taking steps to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. That includes exercise, a good diet, getting adequate sleep, and seeing your health care providers regularly. And protect yourself and others by getting the COVID-19 vaccine and booster, wearing a mask, and social distancing wherever possible. Remember, health is a human right. KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, Board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held.
This is Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender, justice, and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, we'll cover the historic elections in Colombia, where Gustavo Petro has just won a presidential runoff race becoming the nation's first left-leaning leader. His running mate, Francia Marquez, is the first Afro-Colombian ever to be vice president. My guest will be Jean-Vierve Williams-Comrie, executive director of Afro-Resistance, who has just returned from Colombia. Then we'll turn to Angelica Salas of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in L.A. about a new film that her organization has produced called America's Family, a story intended to shed light on the U.S.'s brutal immigration enforcement. Finally, we'll turn back the clock to a conversation I had with Media Matters' Parker Malloy two days after the January 6, 2021 insurrection about the role that Fox News played in the attempted coup. That's coming up in just a moment. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. For the first time, Colombia, the third most populous nation in Latin America, has elected a president who is not conservative. The stalwart U.S. ally has just chosen the former mayor of Bogota, Gustavo Petro, as leader in a runoff election. His running mate, Francia Marquez, has become the nation's first Afro-Colombian vice president. We turn to Jean-Vierve Williams-Comrie, executive director of Afro-Resistance. She's just returned from Colombia. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Very exciting to be here, especially, especially today. So... Um, how unprecedented is this? Latin America as a whole has a long history of electing leftist leaders, then the pendulum swings back and forth, but Colombia has been an exception, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this is the first time um, that it has a leftist um, government and the first time that it has a black um, leadership, you know, a black vice president um, woman on top of that, right? And it's it's really um, it's really inspiring. It's really some his, historical. I have a slight cough. Sorry, but not only that, Francia Mina Marquez is somebody that is loved by the whole country because she is somebody that comes from the community. Is somebody that comes from the territories. It's somebody. She is a peace activist. She is an environmental activist. Francia is somebody that has been working on this, and she is younger than 16. Um, she comes from community organizing. She comes from a black communities process, um, Proceso Comunidades Negras. She has been impacted by the war. She she's an internally displaced person. So, you know, to come from where she comes from and to now be vice president of a nation, it's just 
It's for the people by the people. There's no other thing that I can say and add to that. How did this happen? Uh, it was a close runoff. Uh, Petro and his running mate uh, Marquez won 50 point something of the vote. Uh, and, you know, it uh, not only was Petro the former mayor of Bogota, which of course is fairly standard. But before that, at a very young age, I believe he was 17, he was a rebel. He joined one of the many rebel groups in Colombia. Currently, that group has uh, been disbanded and turned into a political party. But how unusual was it? How did how did that happen? How did somebody like Petro and his running mate, Marquez, end up winning in Colombia? You know, people needed a change. Their whole platform was around cambio which means change in Spanish. Um, what was happening in Colombia was just not working. When we say, and I say we because I'm part of, I'm not a Colombian woman. I'm, I'm not ever gonna appropriate that, I'm Panamanian. But when I say we, it means people that come from a lineage of, of struggle, people that identify racially um, as black, as indigenous, as you know, their whole platform was, um, los olvidados, um, las igualadas, los nadies, which means the nobodies of, of, of society, the ones that society discards, the ones that nobody wants to deal with. Um, those are us, right? Those are the people that these policies don't, the policies of the elite, the policies of the ruling class are usually not mirrored in how they, um, we're not reflected in the benefits that society supposedly is there to service. So this is how this comes about. These two people actually reflect the, the changes that they say that they're going to implement. Why? Because they come from them. Francia, Petro and Francia, but I speak on behalf of Francia because I relate to Francia. She's a black woman, right? As I said before. Um, Francia is somebody that has come from these communities that has been impacted. So when she says environmental degradation, when she speaks about peace, it's because she has lived in unpeaceful situations, because she has lived the consequences of environmental degradation, because she has served as a domestic worker, because she has felt what it means to have lack of education, to not have um, equitable employment to not have just um, access to public health. So when she says that she needs to transform these things and that it's li life or death, I need to listen to that because it's not only about Colombia, it's about the whole region. And those policies will impact how other governments behave. In this case, I hope Panama is listening too because we're next door neighbors. Um, so I really, really identify with those things. And you have to fight. <coughs> Colombia is a mirror to the rest of the world, not only because of position and where it stands in regards to land and natural resources, but because the importance that it means to the environment, right? It's so environmentally diverse. And it's really the lung, the environmental lung to, to Latin America. One of the environmental lungs, Brazil also has that you know they share the amazon but it's one of the environmental lungs in regards to to the environment 
Now, Francia Marquez represents um, 10%, just uh, in terms of demographics, 10% of Colombia is Afro-Colombian. Uh, and this is the first time that someone has, you know, there's never been an Afro-Colombian president. There's also never been an Afro-Colombian vice president. She becomes the first vice president of African heritage. But uh, as you were pointing out, her environmental chops are really what sets her apart. Tell me a little bit about the work she did in opposing mining industries, you know, which really speaks to hopefully this new government's position on industries and on destructive uh, industries in Colombia, because the West, the U.S., has poured money into Colombia, hoping to prop up corporate interests for many, many years, right? Absolutely. One of, one of the things to really keep in mind is that for the past 22 years, the United States has poured into, into Colombia at least $4.5 billion in the form of military training and into arms. So that's, that's one aspect of U.S. foreign policy that, you know, some people want to gloss over. And that's, we could say that's related to the environment and unrelated to the environment, but what is definitely related to it is aerial fumigations, right? Because everything is intersectional in this. And I say that because in, in, the, in their quest to control drugs and, and, and arms, aerial fumigation also depletes the environment because it kills off, especially African descendants and indigenous communities, way ancestral ways of life. And it kills off how they can sustain their families via natural foods and, and natural ways of, of sustaining nourishment. And in right. doing that... Uh, in just, doing and just that, to step back, the U.S. basically fought this drug war in Colombia for years, right? Fueling arms to a right-wing government in opposition to armed rebels. And then as part of that, these fumigation efforts were this environmental destruction, yeah. And, and fought to me is like a little loose term. Um, mm. It could be fought or ignited, right? right. Um, one of the two, right? right? Or both of them together. Um, so, so, and I say, so, so that leads to, well, now we have, now people can't sustain this. Now we have to allow for, for mining industries to come in so that they can then exploit the land even more. So communities are, have always been in resistance, right? to environmental degradations, be it through aerial fumigations or be it through multinationals coming into their communities, um, blocking off river entrances, right? To create dams and the dams um, to, you know, to provide electricity to neighboring communities and not to the communities that are supposed to be benefiting, which is the, the local black or indigenous communities which also, it's very complicated for me to explain like really fast. I would need like a map and everything else. But when you, um, when you basically, um, desviar, I'm not sure the, the word in English, but when you basically reroute a river to create a dam, an electrical dam, um, people get displaced, right? Because you have to dig um, and you have to bring in excavators to dig and to open up which means communities have to have to to be displaced and that means that many people have to either migrate to local communities um, as cheap labor meaning either bus drivers or construction or domestic workers 
because they can't they can't sustain themselves anymore in their local communities their natural resources meaning their rivers become polluted which means fishes can are no longer edible and their grasslands can't be um, agricultural um, production can't happen there anymore so people like Francia and their communities were against construction against expansion of of natural water sources and against mining so of course when people are against that in their own communities they automatically become enemies of transnationals and enemies of of the government because the government wants to make money and benefit from all these all these relationships internationally and francia became a thorn to many through her organizing collectively because there's collective organizing francia was never was never moving um individually she was part of it as i mentioned before of a an organization called proceso de comunidades negras the black communities process where politically she grew she was also mentored um, by many black women in colombia many black elders in colombia um, so francia's victory and i want to bring it back to this francia's victory is not just francia's victory francia's victory is a whole community's victory is a whole um collective victory of black women and black men that have been carrying her since she's very young so so this is when when people are celebrating when people were celebrating it was a collective celebration there's collective accountability francia will not govern just as francia francia is governing for many and by many now the uh most important aspect of course of what happens in colombia is what is next what do you think or how do you think Petro and Marquez are going to move forward in Colombia, given where they've come from? The uh, We've seen previous presidents try to pull in some of the former rebel groups and members of the rebel groups, the FARC, the ELN, <coughs> into government, make peace with them, which is an important part of reconciliation and moving forward. Do you think that Petro and Marquez, have they made that a central part of their platform? And have they also you know, uh, vowed to take on the corporatists, the environmentalists, uh, the environmental, you know, the, the destroyers of the environment? Well, one of the things that they both have said and, and acknowledge is that the economic system is completely broken in Colombia. Um, <clears throat> that there's been an over-reliance on oil exportation, that there's been an over-reliance on the concept of the rich gets richer, of course, and, and growth in that, sen in that sense, and that they really need to pay attention to what is going on with their base. And the base is who got them elected. So we're talking about the LGBT communities, people with disabilities, the poor communities. Women specifically played a big role in their campaign. So how are these groups going to grow? Um, how are these groups going to benefit from new policies and new structures within their government? Um, a ministry of um, equidad is being created, and this new ministry will 
propose new policies and new structures to Can really- Can you repeat that, a ministry of? Equidad, of equality, of equity um, is being created that that this is one of the, the proposed um, initiatives that Marquez is coming and Petro has fully supported as well. Um, so these are these are some of the new initiatives that are going to be fresh um, for Colombia that are going to bring into um, that are going to bring into accountability as I, I spoke before you know is shifting from what we have today from what they have today which is poverty into okay what are some of the the shifts that we can see that can level off what we have been what they have been experiencing um, throughout centuries that is fully broken and bring them up to par where people can level off. You know, I know that there are some proposals around, for example, giving heads of women heads of households that have been excluded from the economy a base salary so that they can then sustain themselves, get a, a an education, a university. Um, the concept of education for all is something that they'll be that they'll be not only exploring but implementing expansion of social programs. I think one of the key focuses is going internal first for people um, and taking care internally first. And I know, of course, that they will be looking at, they have committed to um, dealing with the high levels of deforestation um, that the Colombian Amazon is dealing with. So really taking, look, taking a close look at the the environmental degradation that is happening within Colombia and figuring out how can we restore what has been depleted and what has been exploited from a from an environmental um, perspective that is accountable to Mother Earth first and then to the economy second. Jean-Vierre, what about the Biden administration and Colombia? What are what do you hope could be the best case scenario for the U.S to have relations with Colombia because historically, of course, it's been pretty tough. The U.S. has uh, encouraged right-wing dictators and authoritarians in Latin America. It has undermined left-leaning uh, leaders. Just recently with the Summit of the Americas here in the United States, um, the, United, the U.S. excluded what it called authoritarian leaders, which were the leaders of Venezuela and Cuba, Nicaragua, and uh, I wonder if, if uh, Petro and Marquez are next in terms of who the U.S. will try to undermine because they don't like their policies. What would you, if you had the ear of President Biden, who has you know, claimed he wants to be a different kind of president, what advice would you give him for embracing Colombia under this new leadership? Um, as he says, is to tackle climate change. This is this is an administration to really work with on that, um, but it can't be on Biden's terms. It really has to be on Petro and Marquez's terms. Um, so I think the negotiations are going to have to be different. It's gonna it, it can't be on on Washington's terms. Now I think it's 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 time to really like shift a little bit the power dynamics. Um, as far as I know from the Colombian side, from what I've heard that there is a point of dialogue, I can't comment more on that because I really don't know more about what the what they're thinking of. Um, and I'm not a, you know, 
I'm not part of their of their team. So um, I will leave that those comments up to them. But I believe that anything that has to deal with um, the Amazon and saving the rainforest and, and climate change, um, the, the new incoming Colombian administration is fully committed to. And I know that they will more than likely want a dialogue with open ears and, you know, to deal with that, with that limitation. You just returned from Colombia. How close were you to the to the winning leadership of Colombia? Give me a sense of what it felt like. You know, I'm I've been friends with Francia for many years. Um, I consider her one of my sister and comrades, and not only her but her family. So I was celebrating with her. What can I say? It, it was great. It was great sharing space and sharing hugs. Everybody's so proud of each other, right? Um, as I said, it's not only her victory. This is a collective win. Um, one of the most beautiful things to see was her beautiful um, mother, Gloria, um, with her on stage and her son. Um, and just sharing, just to see three generations um, of strong black people, a family united, holding hands um, lovingly, just made my night that night. Um, just knowing the stories of, of struggle that so many black families in the region um, have been through. And, and, you know, I think all black people in the region at one point or other have identified with the Marcus family. So I think everybody cried. I know I cried. I was a hot mess. Um, <laughs> but just seeing them on stage, I think we all in the African diaspora throughout Latin America identified. We all had butterflies and it was all worth it. So congratulations to, to Francia once again. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time here. My guest has been Jean-Vieve Williams-Comrie, Executive Director of Afro-Resistance. She just returned from Colombia, which has elected Gustavo Petro and his running mate, Francia Marquez, the first uh, Afro-Colombian vice president in the nation's history. You can access this and other interviews on our website at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. Also find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Immigrants are rarely portrayed in Hollywood film or television projects, except as caricatures or stereotypes. 
The human cost of our harsh immigration policies is not a common film trope, in spite of the harm that countless people face. To remedy that, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in LA, or CHIRLA, has backed the production of a new film, directed, written, and produced by Anike Tours, called America's Family. Tours also stars in the film. And joining me now to tell us all about it is Angelica Salas, the executive director of CHIRLA. Welcome to the program. Uh, so wonderful to be here with you, Sonali. Tell me about this film. Uh, we'll watch the trailer in just a moment. It's not a documentary, it's a feature film. What was the impetus for this film? Well, uh, Chirla has been using film for many years in order to do community education, to really um, tell the stories of our community, but also to educate them about their rights. Many of our members of our community aren't necessarily um, literate in a sense that they can read their rights on paper. And so we found that film was one of the best ways to actually advance that goal. But in addition to that, we partnered with Anika Tours for, for over 20 years um, to create short films. And so this film is our first feature length film. And this feature length film is really um, dedicated to all the immigrant families who have been separated um, by our harsh immigration systems, and I wouldn't even call it harsh, cruel immigration system. Um, and really, it was created in order for us to tell our story from our perspective, from an immigrant lens, and also from an immigrant rights organization to really um, express what's happening to our families every day. And so the, the um, stories that are told in this docudrama is actually, um, are actually based on real life stories that we have experienced as part of Cherla. So it's a family, America's family is the title of the film, and of course it focuses on a family. Um, tell me, give me a, a brief outline of the plot of the film, of course, without giving too much away. Uh, I understand that it's a mixed status family, which is of course so common in immigrant communities. So this, this story is a story of a family, which is a mixed status family. So it's about a family made up of individuals who are undocumented, who are citizens, um, who are also on temporary uh, protected status. And really what it is, it really tells the story of why people migrate to the United States, how um, our families and individuals within those families get caught up in the immigration system towards deportation, and how difficult it is to really um, get out of that labyrinth of the immigration system. Um, and that many times, even though you might have access to attorneys or at least to access to some level of justice, the, the system is incredibly, incredibly rigid and incredibly cruel. So it tells the story of what happens when a family is actually impacted by deportation, by detention. And really the most beautiful thing about this story is about how this family unites in order to fight back against the system and to really fight back for their rights, which is really what we do at Cherlet each and every day. So let's actually watch the trailer for the film, America's Family, and then we will give you a sense of where and how you can watch it. Te amo. Te amo. No puedes decir 
¿Qué pasó? Pecaron oficiales en la puerta. Pensé que era la poli, no la migra. Una orden de arresto es diferente a una orden de deportación. ¿La leíste? Your son was ordered deported. You failed to show up for a court hearing due to an underage driving charge. The judge ordered you to leave the country. Those charges were dropped. I want to call my family. My wife has been arrested. She's not a criminal. It's my fault. I opened door for that migrant. Marcel Diaz, it's your hands. Yo voy a regresar a la casa y tu hermano puede enviarte de regreso a Los Ángeles. Es posible que estés registrado en tu pueblo. Sueña todos Los Ángeles. You won't be the first lawyer to learn on the job. He's not going back. I understand this is personal for you. You'll be strong. Fight. Right now, I'm what we've got. Me, I'm it. Can you please try to make this work? Mom has a real case, and you're turning it into a circus. I have just as much of a right to help my mother as you do. And we have the most important thing that keeps families together, and that's love. And that is America's Family uh, trailer for the new film by Anike Tours. Uh, she actually stars as the mother who, for our TV audience, you might have uh, caught a glimpse of her. Uh, and joining me is Angelica Salas, executive director of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in L.A., Cherla has backed production of the film. Tell me about the journey to make this film. There was a lot of fundraising involved. This seems to be really a product of, of a community. Well, I think our whole community rallied together, individual donors, um, and, and really just said, we want to tell our story, um, and we want to tell it right. Um, many times what we see in film are stories with very... Uh, what I would call fairy tale endings, which aren't necessarily what's happening right now in our immigration system, but it also portrays us as, as weak. And we wanted to really show uh, the power that we have as a community um, and, and the resilience that we have. But we also do not want to shy away from how this system is tearing our families apart. The other thing that was really important for us to talk about were the deported. Um, often the individuals, the millions of people, who have been deported from this country become invisible. Um, once they're deported, nobody ever talks about them again. So we want to really lift up the story of our deported individuals and family members um, who then are really um, put out into their home countries. And so this uh, film also tells the story of what happens when you're deported and how you have to reconnect with family in, in another country. And so we are transnational immigrant families, and so we wanted to really lift that up as well. But most importantly, um, what you will see in this film are a lot of our members who are the extras. Uh, so many people put love into this film, put a lot of sweat equity into this film. And so when we were able to finally premiere it 
it was so beautiful to see our members filling um, the theater, a huge theater filled with our members and with everybody who actually had a little part in actually getting this done. And I think that's what makes us the most proud of this film. It's, it's taken us over four years to finally complete, but almost 20 years in the making in terms of producing short films over these years and then finally doing our feature length film. How important is it, Angelica, to have these stories on the big screen? You and I live in Southern California, the home of Hollywood. And over and over, year after year, we see, as per the UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report, the representation of, in, in particular, Latinos, and who, of course, are a big part of our immigrant communities, is on screen is terrible. The representation is just so, so poor. So how important is it to share these stories on the big screen? What role does it play in changing policy? Well, first and foremost, what we noticed is that um, the stories of immigrants are rarely told by immigrants. And so that was the first thing we wanted to do. We wanted an immigrant story told by, an Im by immigrants themselves. Almost everybody who is part of this film is has um, an immigrant background. Anika Tours is an African-American woman uh, who partnered with us over all these years to really tell our story. And what I really feel that is so important about this film is that um, when we show it, immigrants really feel validated. You know, we have shown it in private screenings um, over a course almost of a year in, in its different, you know, I would say iterations over, and yet before, you know, sort of the final edits. And every time we have shown it um, in the audience, people stand up and, and, and they just really are so thankful and they say, that's my story. That's the story of my family. We just captured it in a, in a very um, uplifting but respectful way, but also you captured um, the pain that we have all gone through. And that means so much to us when we're validated time and time again by the people who are seeing it and who feel through the film a level of courage to share what has happened to them. Um, one of the actresses of, of the films of the film actually was also um, herself um, uh, impacted by immigration and wasn't actually going through the entire film process. But she said she was finally able after years and years to tell the story of how her mother was also deported. So when we think about how a film like this gets made, it's not easy, takes a lot of money, uh, but of course, once it's made, the next step is getting it in front of audiences. So you mentioned there have been community screenings, but America as a whole needs to see a film like this, right? Because it's been decades since we had comprehensive immigration reform of any kind passed legislatively, you know, short of executive actions which have been litigated and there's been two steps forward, three steps back. So how to how what is the plan to get this film in front of big audiences? Well, first of all, um, we saw we see this film as a tool towards our policy and advocacy goal, which is to change our immigration laws um, so that they are more just and more humane and that they keep our families together. That is its purpose, but it's also its purpose is to connect with a broader American audience to really show them what's happening to families and to really connect them to their own families, um, their own vision of their lives, and how uh, uh, um, how we by by changing our laws we can actually um, you know just live as a collective in in a much more uh, unified and I would just say dignified way. 
Um, so um, the first thing I want to tell you is we're so excited um, that this week um, we found out that when we were selected to a film festival, Dances with Films, but not, not only that, you know, we showed the film, it, it, we had its world premiere, but we won the grand jury and the audience uh, prizes at the uh, Dances with Films Festival. Now, the next thing is um, to connect it to distribution. We want this to be seen widely. And so um, right now we're um, sort of in the uh, film festival circuit. And our hope is that um, we will be able to connect with um, community distributors, somebody who aligns with our values, a community to actually redistribute it to as many um, uh, audiences as possible. The one thing that is very important about this film is it also has a community education component to it. So in addition to obviously having the film, um, we have produced a whole series of um, community education um, products to connect it to the film so that people can have conversations and discussions about the content of the film. So that's still our purpose, um, but we just feel that the, a feature-length film, um, a story, a, a, a storytelling really connects people with each other, connects um, lives with lives, and our hope is that it will help us again, lift up the stories of immigrant families in this country, but also lift the stories of the deported. So when we change our laws, we, we, um, we really strive to bring our families together again and make them whole. Angelica, you are an, a longtime advocate for uh, fair and compassionate immigration policies. Let me close by asking you whether there's been a difference that you've seen other than rhetorical on immigration policies since President Joe Biden took office. Obviously, we are, do not live in the age of Trump anymore. So that does make a big difference. Just the atmosphere of the country feels different. But on a practical level, are immigration policies fairer under Biden? Um, there's more discretion under Biden, for sure. Um, and we have seen that maybe case by case, where certain families haven't been um, deported or separated in, in the mass scale that we saw previously, and previously to Trump and also during Obama. Um, however, our immigration system has still not changed. And part of what happens is that um, we really have a failed Congress. And so what we have is a situation in which we keep passing legislation out of the House of Representatives um, that's majority controlled by um, the House of Rep you know, by Democrats in the House of Representatives. Um, but then when you get to the Senate, this 50-50 and a Joe Manchin and Cinema get, has gotten in the way of immigration just in the same way um, that has gotten um, in, uh, in the middle of you know, reproductive rights. It's gotten in, in the middle of gun, you know, of gun control. It's, it's really become the barrier and we have to change that. We have to change the politics that currently exist. We also have to demand, I, my perspective, more from President Biden and also Vice President Kamala Harris to also use their executive powers in whatever way possible. And, and I know that um, there's a lot of fear of having Republican states then sue um, the president as he takes maybe more progressive and positive action. But I just feel like, you know, Trump was not held back by the courts. He attacked us at every single moment that he could. I think President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris need to use the executive office to protect us in every which way. And then we fight that in court, but we gotta protect our families. We, uh, we have too many separated families. And so my perspective is whether in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, 
or in the White House, each of these representatives who state that they are with us, who believe in the unity of family, who believe our immigration system is broken, and who say this you know, thousands of times over every time that they want to talk about immigration, then they have to use every um, element of their power to protect us. That's the way I, I, I believe it. And if they're not using the whole of their power um, in order to advance justice in this country for immigrants, um, then that, they're not fully doing their job. So while I recognize that the situation is very different under President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, they still have not fulfilled everything in their power to actually protect our families. And especially, I wanna say, at our border, we have to lift Title 42, which is a, you know, just an excuse to um, not provide refuge for asylum seekers. And we also um, have to just stop deportations in general because that's what's tearing our families apart. Give out a website, Angelica, both for Chirla as well as for the film America's Family that we've been discussing so people can uh, pay attention and see where they might be able to watch it once it's out in theaters. Uh, sure. Um, so you can reach uh, Chirla at www.chirla.org, and then you can find out all about our different programming, including America's Family. But you can go to America's Family website, which is americasfamilymovie.com. Um, and so um, you can go there, and then you, it also provides you opportunities on the website uh, to get involved. Anelika, good luck to you with the film and all the work you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you, Sonali, and, and thank you for everything you do for our community. Too. My guest has been Angelica Salas. She is the executive director of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in L.A. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The January 6th far-right mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol building will go down in history as the violent and perhaps inevitable culmination of Donald Trump's presidency. But how did his favorite news media outlets cover the attack? And more importantly, what did Fox News and their ilk do to pave the way for the violent mob? My guest is Parker Molloy, editor-at-large for Media Matters. Welcome to the program, Parker. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, how did they cover the rally and then the subsequent breaching of the barricades and this historic and, and mind-blowing assault on the Capitol building? 
leading up to that, they they had started to at least somewhat acknowledge that that Biden had won. It it was not a popular position, obviously, at Fox, but in in the immediate aftermath of of the attack, there was very it was very clear that Fox didn't quite have a clear narrative down yet, because you would have some people cheer them on to say that they're oh they're most they're being mostly peaceful or they are um, patriots or they are uh, protesting and just trying to draw attention away from the the more violent aspects of it which I mean if you're breaking into the capital that's that's kind of violent in itself um, but later in the day and going into the the next couple of days the narrative shifted a little bit to where you had Fox hosts starting to suggest that maybe there were um, people, leftists who had embedded themselves within the crowd and were causing trouble to try to make Trump supporters look bad. Antifa, it it was just really quite remarkable to see how quickly the uh, pivot to, well, if they are being violent, then they must be Antifa um, happened. It was really quite shocking. Whereas, of course, just, you know, in the hours before the actual breaching of the barricades, these people were clearly labeled and seen as Trumpers, embraced as Trumpers, lauded and, and, and you know, um, held up as patriots. And, and suddenly when they passed, breached the, the barricades, they magically turned into Antifa. Yeah, and, and that's been, that, that sadly has been kind of how we got here as well. I, this this idea that they they hear rumors of Antifa being in the crowd and causing trouble, and that's enough for them. Uh, in the post-election period, there was a um, kind of a push to say that people who wanted to overturn the election were justified in wanting to do that because they feel like there's voter fraud or they feel like the election that's was right. stolen from Trump. Yeah. And this is the same crowd that goes around constantly saying things like facts don't care about your feelings, but they, they just felt like they were justified to undermine the American democratic system uh, because they felt like it. And that kind of carried over into, into how it was covered after this attack. There were a lot of, well, we're hearing that Antifa may have been in there names aren't confirmed or you know, they, they would kind of dance around things. It's very clear that the names of many of those supporters, uh, many of those the people involved there were, were very obviously Trump supporters. Uh, and if you check their social media and if you uh, spend too much time online like I do where you immediately recognize some of the faces, uh, they, they were very clearly treading water and trying to shift the narrative once it became clear that attacking the, the U.S. Capitol was not going to play well for them politically. Did you find in your analysis of, of how Fox News and, and other media in, on the right covered it, did you find that as the Capitol building was being attacked, that they maybe drew comparisons to the revolution or uh, pointed out that these people were in some in, in some way justified in taking over the capital. 
Yes, I, I that that is something that uh, that I definitely noticed um, to varying extents. It, it varied by different hosts, essentially. Tucker Carlson, the the on January sixth during a show, he essentially tried to uh, urge audiences to urge the audience to uh, have empathy for for the, uh, the the people who stormed the Capitol. And it, that's kind of it's kind of rich because he he spent the the better part of 2020 attacking Black Lives Matter protesters and calling pretty much anything that they were involved in if it escalated beyond a peaceful protest, referring to that as a riot and showing imagery of things that were on fire, even if those images were weeks or months old, and uh, just trying to smear an entire movement with. Uh, by by drawing attention to the the worst aspects of it, and you see the complete opposite here. You see people saying, "Hold on, slow down. Let's try to understand this. Let's let's think carefully. Let's let's check our facts." We All of a sudden, the anything. motives of yeah. the people breaking in were a oh, yeah. very real concern to Fox News, whereas there was never any discussion or not usually enough discussion of the motives of anyone, anyone involved with Black Lives Matter as to why they might be protesting. And of course, studies show that the vast majority were protesting peacefully. So it was really interesting also to see that just as in the case of the Black Lives Matter protests last year, there were in some instances some people who did commit violence and studies showed that the overwhelming majority were peaceful. Um, that n logic was n rejected by Fox News, but in the case of the Capitol, I heard at least one uh, newscaster try, you know, try to say something like, well, the overwhelming majority were peaceful and there was just this one small percentage that were being violent. So again, double standards on this. Yeah, it was, it it was, Kind of remarkable to to hear that. Um, not entirely surprising uh, that they would m make excuses there. It was, it's kind of the same response that they had um, after the Unite the Right rally in 2017 and 2017, 2017 or 2018. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Uh, in Charlottesville. 2017 to Charlottesville. <laughs> Time has lost meaning. <laughs> so, uh, but after after that, there was a lot of um, okay. Let's understand the protesters. Let's understand where they were coming from. What they they were fighting for to save a statue. This was it was this whole justifying fine people on both sides kind of kind of thing, and you're you're seeing that again now. And what is bizarre is that I don't think that anyone is judging people who just happen to be at the Trump rally on the 6th or just happen to be in DC it's the people who went into the capital that that are the the problem here those are the people who are being criticized no one's criticizing someone who is out who is in the middle of a a field a mile away from from the capital it's the people who who went to the capital who help push past the the Capitol Police and destroyed property and threatened lives. One thing that that has been catching my attention is watching them try to use this attack to advance their own policies, which is no surprise. I mean, that's, that's basic politics. Uh, Laura Ingram on her show, she used it as an occasion to push for 
making voting harder, wow. restrictive voting measures, how, which well, how? has I nothing mean... to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the, the argument was that, that people felt like there was there was fraud in the election. And if they didn't think that there was fraud in the election, then they wouldn't have stormed the Capitol. And if they, it's essentially, they, they cut themselves out of it, which was the, the subject of, of one of my most recent pieces, hmm. which was this, the sense that what happened on Fox News and, and in other right, right-wing media outlets is that they took a step back. They, they absolved themselves of any sort of um, blame for the current state of affairs. They absolved themselves of blame for leading people to believe that the election was stolen. For, for more than two months now, day in and day out, you tune into Newsmax or OAN or Fox News, and you'll get these messages saying, "Well, there was clearly some fraud," or "Well, so that's we... so." Let's the, let's yeah. lead into the the way in which Fox News paved the way for what took place on Wednesday. Even those who appeared shocked at the fact that a percentage of the the group gathered would turn into this violent mob and actually attack the nation's. Uh, the, the Capitol building in, in, in D.C., even those people, um, you know, d- didn't uh, seem to take responsibility for the fact that they their media convinced this huge horde of people that the election was stolen. I mean, if, if you have a massive number of Americans who are truly convinced that their president won and the election was stolen from him, we shouldn't be surprised that they might want to go to any lengths to save their country or their democracy or whatever words they used, because they were truly convinced that it was real. So they were truly convinced it was real in part, in large part, because of Fox News. And of course, Fox News echoing the Trump campaign, right? And the Trump administration, which basically became an extension of the Trump campaign. Right. Well, it, it, exactly. And that, I think, has been, um, when, it, when it comes to right-wing media, when it comes to Fox News, that's why Trump has been such a, uh, such a positive for them, because they don't have to create the stories. Mm-hmm. They don't have to make up the conspiracy theories. They all have, all they, they have, have to do is president. report that the president thinks yeah. something is true. <laughs> exactly. That becomes a story, because there used to be this thing where uh, back in 2020, 2010, 2011, Glenn Beck would go on on TV and he would have some absurd conspiracy theory that he would throw out there on a chalkboard or Bill O'Reilly would say something. And then the next day you would see Fox News covering the reaction to the previous night's show as news because that was news. But now it's like you have the president of the United States saying exactly what you want, just putting propaganda out into the world. And so you report on it. We need to reevaluate media as a whole, journalism as a whole, the press as a whole. Like what is the what is the function of a press in democracy, in a functioning democracy? Because the focus, especially these past several years, seems to have gone increasingly to this, um, which I know this isn't new, but uh, to uh, you know, a focus on entertainment or pandering to to both sides. It's it's the Neil Postman um, amusing ourselves to death kind of critique of media where 
we aren't learning things. We aren't advancing our understanding of the world. We are just seeking out information that makes us happy. And that's why Fox has seen some issues when it comes to acknowledging reality. When it acknowledges that that Joe Biden won Arizona, you saw people angrily turn on Fox and yep. say that they were going to go watch Newsmax and watch OAN. And right, the president himself never watch Fox again. was very upset. Yeah, exactly. Pe- people don't want the news. They want to he- they want to hear a story where they are the protagonists of you know, reality. And of course, uh, when Trump himself came out with a, with a televised and very scripted address, uh, saying that 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 the pro, that the rioters sh- would be um, held accountable, um, news media reported how betrayed his supporters felt by that, as if they as if they thought that he would remain loyal to them, um, no matter what. Because if there's one thing that uh, Trump has proven over and over again that is that he he's loyal to himself and nobody else. Um, Well, Parker, give out a website for where people can read the analysis that Media Matters does so that they can, so that they don't have to watch Fox News in person. (laughs) We watch it so you don't have to. Um, uh, Which I'm very grateful. You can read read our work at mediamatters.org. And we'll post a link to that from our website. That's mediamatters.org. Parker, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My guest has been Parker Molloy, editor-at-large for Media Matters. We've been discussing how Fox News and right-wing media paved the way for and covered the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. <laughs>